seems like just yesterday we started in Acts, but we are preparing in just a few months to say goodbye to an old friend. As we get in this final stage of Paul's ministry here in the book of Acts. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 20, the first 16 verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of God is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is, no matter what anyone else would say, authoritative over our lives and faith. Acts chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. They, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assus, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assus, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the day opposite Caius. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to Jerusalem. To be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of His Word. Let's pray that He would add His blessing upon it to our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this Your Word. We thank You that it is alive and powerful. And we pray, Lord, that You would teach us from the experiences of the great Apostle Paul, but also for all those who were around him. 
We ask, O Lord, that You would remind us of what You have in store for us and the way that You have blessed us. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are coming to this last phase of the book of Acts. This is the conclusion of of Paul's ministry. And it's it's a, a very interesting text. There's an interesting story, again, just like last week, in the midst of this. Um, I want to encourage you that we're only on one story, and the deacons have arranged so that all of the windows do not open. So as I go long today, none of you will be in any danger. There's also a good bit that's behind the text. There's things going on here that I think we need to see that we can glean from Paul's epistles of how the ministry that Paul has is entering into this last phase, this phase of building up the churches. Paul is moving on from being a church planter and a missionary to doing a time of strengthening the churches, pointed toward Jerusalem and eventually Rome. And in that sense, this part of the book of Acts is is very helpful for us because it gives us a good glimpse at what ordinary, normal church life is like. Now you may say, well, I haven't seen anyone fall out of a window in ordinary church. Now ordinary, normal church life is not mundane, is it? There are powerful things that go on. There are lessons to be learned. There is the grace of God to be seen. But what we see here is the main ways in which the Lord works in His people. And so this morning, I'd like us to see three things from this text. First, how in ordinary church life, part and parcel of it is trusting God's providence. Trusting in God's providence. And then secondly, we will see the blessings that come from God's worship. Trusting God's providence and the blessings that come from God's worship. And then finally, we will see what it means to be receiving God's comfort in the midst of ordinary church life. Trusting, worshiping, and receiving God's comfort. Well, let's begin then by looking at the providence of God and how we are to trust in it. This is something that is a great challenge to, I think, all of us. It doesn't matter whether we face financial difficulties or health challenges or relationship struggles. We struggle to trust the Lord with the providence that He has given to us. We wonder why life is like the way it is. Perhaps some of you, just as one example, were horrified as I was to find out that in a nation that we are protecting... And that we just prayed for our soldiers. Servants of Satan are beheading and killing Christians and others because one book was burned halfway around the world. We look at this and we wonder, why is this the case? Where is God? Shouldn't there be mass conversions? Shouldn't there be encouraging news? The challenge here is not to see God's providence the way we want to but rather to trust the Lord. And this happens to the Apostle Paul as well. We see this first, trusting God's providence is very hard in hard times. Isn't it? It's easy to praise the Lord and to say everything comes from the hand of the Lord when the bonus comes in at work. And when the car doesn't break down. And when the kids get into the school they want to get into. 
And when everything goes the way it's supposed to, right? That's easy. But in hard times is when our trust for God is challenged. Now, let me just give you a bit of a feel for what Paul is going through here. It is about the year 55 A.D. Paul is in Ephesus. And he has been ministering there for quite some time, perhaps as long as three years. And at the end of three years, the church is strong, but the city is still a place where there can be a near-violent riot against what Paul is teaching. Now, you can imagine that while Paul is safe from this riot, and while we laughed a bit last week at how foolish those in the assembly were, it had to be at least a bit discouraging for Paul to be teaching every single day in the hot sun after a long day at work, and three years later, the city can still put together a riot. To put on top of that, right about this time, Paul receives a delegation from the city of Corinth. It's what's behind here in verse 1, him departing from Macedonia. You may wonder, why does he go from Ephesus to Macedonia? Luke doesn't tell us. But Paul himself does. A delegation had come to him and had said, Paul, you've got to help us. The church in Corinth is falling apart. We don't know if it's going to make it another three months. What? Corinth, this is a place where Paul spent a year and a half, where he had encouraged the saints, where he had built up a church. What's going on? Well, you see, Paul, there are factions everywhere. We've got a group over here that says, well, I'm of Apollos. And then there's a group over here that says, I'm of Peter. And then there's, of course, your group. And then there's the super spiritual group. They're not of any man, but they're of Christ. And all they do is fight. All the time. They fight about which hymns to sing. They fight about where things should be in the order of the service. They fight about which widows they should help. They all think they have the right idea. Divisions are everywhere. Of course, in our modern days, we never face this problem. So we can't identify. But it's not just factions and divisions. That would be bad enough. But they go on and they say to Paul, you have no idea. The church is scandalized before the world. What, Paul might say? You, you remember Corinth? The Las Vegas of the ancient world where everything goes? Yes, Paul, but you're not going to believe the stories about the immorality that's going on in the church. Paul's horrified. And then they say something else. You're not going to believe this. Brothers are suing brothers in the civil court system. There's immorality. There's lawsuits. There's divisions. And they don't even know how to properly take the Lord's Supper. Paul must have been devastated. And Paul does what any active pastor would do. He plans a trip to go back and fix things. Now, I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of Paul here for a minute. He's discouraged. He's hearing bad reports, and he's going to go fix things because Paul is a mover and a shaker. Paul knows how to get things done. This is Paul's plan. Times are hard. And I want you to learn something also about Bible people. Bible people sin. Bible people worry when they're not supposed to. Bible people are anxious when they're not supposed to. 
Bible people, as a matter of fact, are just like you and me. The great Apostle Paul here becomes, there's only one word for it, anxious. He gets up and he leaves and he goes to Macedonia. Now, what you also need to know, what's behind this text is, Paul goes as far as the town of Troas. We'll meet it on his way back. But he goes there and he is waiting for someone who you know named Titus. The person that Paul wrote a book for. Titus is supposed to come back and bring him news about what's happening at Corinth. Because before Paul left, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. That's happening right now. He sent that book to Corinth to try and address the problems. And now he's waiting for Titus to come back and give him news. And he's waiting at Troas. Have you ever waited for news of something? Job offer? Grades? Health report? You know what that's like, right? Looking at your watch. What time is it? Yeah, 30 seconds later than the last time. Okay, all right, where could they be? Where could they possibly be? Did their phone not work? Maybe it was spam in the email. Let me send another email. Right? This is what Paul is doing. He's pacing back and forth in Troas, and he finally says, you know what? I've got to go to Corinth. I can't wait for Titus anymore. I don't know what's going to happen. He tells us this in 2 Corinthians. He says, When he came at Troas to preach the gospel, even though a door was opened for me by the Lord. So Paul is in a town. He's ready to preach. A door was opened by the Lord. And you know Paul the preacher. He says, I couldn't find rest. My spirit couldn't find rest because I didn't find my brother Titus. So I had to leave and go to Macedonia. Paul is anxious. He cannot wait for Titus. And so he sets out in the midst of this. Have you ever been anxious this way? If you have, then you have to understand that the Lord doesn't want you to be anxious. We're going to see that in just a moment, how the Lord deals with Paul. But you need to understand that that anxiety is real. It is not something that no Christian feels. We need to understand and embrace our anxiety and bring it to the Lord that we might find peace, real inner peace. Not the kind of temporary peace that we get by distracting ourselves with other things, but real trust in the providence of God that no matter how this turns out, whether Corinth experiences a revival or the church folds, God is in control. This is what Paul does. Paul sets out And God is so very good to Paul. On his way to Macedonia, on the road, guess who he meets? Titus. And guess what the report is that comes from Titus? It's better than anything Paul could have imagined. It's so wonderful, Paul takes the time to write another letter, 2 Corinthians, to Corinth, praising them for how he has now been eased, and his mind is at peace, and because of that, He's going to take a grand tour of Macedonia. He doesn't need to rush to Corinth. He can do other things. He can build up the churches. Have you ever had that experience? Where the Lord meets you in the midst of your anxiety and explains to you that He is sovereign, not in a spoken, audible voice, but in the clear dictates of providence. This is what happened to Paul. 
But God's not through teaching Paul and us yet about providence. Because Paul goes, and he goes through Macedonia, perhaps as long as a year and a half, visiting all of these cities that we see later, Berea and Philippi, all of these places where he has planted churches. And then finally, in the winter of 56 and 57, he shows up in Corinth. And he spends three months there because it's the winter and you don't really travel in the ancient world in the winter. And he lays out all of his plans with all of those who are in Corinth. They gather together up a delegation to bring famine relief to Jerusalem. The saints at Jerusalem, you recall, are in great famine. They are dying of hunger. And so Paul has taken up a collection from all of these Macedonian churches and he's got everything ready. He's talked to his travel agent. He's booked passage on, I don't know what the name of the ship is, the HMS Joshua or something like that. He's booked passage on a ship to Jerusalem. He's gathered up a delegation. Do you see this here? It's a delegation from all over Macedonia. One of the noble Bereans is with him. Those from Thessalonica are with him. He's got those from Galatia. He's got people from Asia. And they're all gathered up together. And even Dr. Luke is back. You see that? Because again we see we here in verse 6. He's gathered up this whole delegation of all sorts of folks and they are ready to go and they're just about to set sail at the right time to catch the right winds to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And God changes Paul's plans. At the last moment, his bags are packed, he is ready to go, and he finds out about a plot to kill him. And he knows he can't take that ship because this is a ship of pilgrims going to Jerusalem for the Passover and those who are plotting against him are going to hide on the ship. And over in the middle of the Mediterranean, if one ex-Jewish rabbi accidentally gets thrown overboard, Nobody's going to worry too much about it. It's the perfect place to rub Paul out of the picture. And so Paul knows he can't do this, and it means that the famine relief has to wait. He can't be in Jerusalem for the Passover. All of his plans for perhaps the next year are put on hold. And he might be tempted, just as you, just as I would be, to kick the dirt and to say, why, oh why, is God doing this to me? Isn't God in charge? Doesn't He know how important the things I have to do are for the kingdom? You see, God's providence can quickly become our providence if we're not careful. Paul is under a strong desire to go to Jerusalem. He hasn't been there in years. All of a sudden... Everything is put on hold. And everything is put on hold because of the wicked plans of wicked men. And if we are not careful, we can be tempted to look at this incident and say, God is not in control. Satan is thwarting the kingdom. The demons are in charge. Now, as we look at this text, it's easy to say, well, this is Paul. Of course that isn't the case. God's in control. But I ask you the question. When someone in your family gets ill, do you think demons are in charge of you? When your plans 
for a family vacation or a new job or a new house fall apart? Do you think that you are under the thumb of Satan? That he is in charge of your life? You see, God is not in charge only when good things happen. God is in charge when bad things happen. God is even in charge when wicked things happen. We don't know why all the time. But it's encouraging in a text like this for us to see why in this case. Because you see what happens here is Paul is not able to go to Jerusalem. So instead, he goes through Macedonia and stops at Philippi. You see that in verse 6? And he and Dr. Luke, who many believe is actually from Philippi, they spend the Passover in Philippi. And so Paul is able to spend time with old friends. And I think, without too much speculation, that having just written a letter about how Jesus Christ is our Passover, that Paul would have taken the opportunity to teach the church at Philippi what it means to have Jesus Christ as our Passover on Passover. To strengthen that church so that in years to come, when Paul needs help most, when he is at Rome and he needs assistance, who does he write to? The church at Philippi. Who does he hold up as a shining example? The church at Philippi. You see, God had a plan for the church at Philippi. And God's plan will come true even if Paul has other plans. This teaches us that we need to beware when we are tempted to blame God for the bad things that happen in our life. Because living in a sinful world, I will let you in on a secret. Even the young bad things are going to happen to you. You're going to be hungry. You're going to lose things. Things are going to break. People are going to let you down. But if we look at that in the providence of God and trust Him, we can get through whatever difficult things the Lord has placed in our midst. Well, Paul perseveres through these hard provinces, providences, excuse me, and he finally sets sail for Troas. Even that is not easy. It takes him five days to get there, it only took him two days to get the other way because the winds are contrary to him. And on the first day of the week, he gathers together with that church. And here we begin to see the blessings that come from God's worship. We see it in three things happening at this church. We see it in the Lord's day. We see it in the Lord's word. And we see it in the Lord's supper. This is the first text where we are really opened up to the biblical concept of the Lord's Day. That is the day that is changed from the Sabbath, Saturday, to Sunday. The first day of the week. This is really the first and best glimpse we get of normal, ordinary worship in the church of Jesus Christ. The day has been changed, but the pattern of one in seven is old to these believers. One day in seven set aside to the Lord is something that has been established since the Old Testament. But there is a change. Some of you may have wondered, why is this change? Maybe even you've done some cursory Bible study and wondered why as a church we don't meet on Saturday like the Old Testament believers do. 
You may even have seen denominations that insist upon Saturday as the day of worship. Well, why is this? Why should we change things? What's so important about Sunday that we should change God's day? There's something very important about Sunday. There's something very important about the first day of the week. The first day of the week is the day that changed the entirety of the universe. Because the first day of the week is the day on which our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And after that day, nothing is the same ever. And to honor our Lord Jesus Christ, the church began a pattern of worshiping on the first day of the week. We see that throughout the end of the Gospel of John. We've seen it in other places here in Acts. But here in ordinary, normal worship, we see this continuity of one day in seven moved to the first day of the week. There is continuity because we still believe in ten commandments, not nine. It's the Decalogue, not the Novemalogue. Some of you have never even heard the word Novemalogue. It means nine laws. To keep the Sabbath, the Lord's day, holy. That is the pattern. It's kind of like this. Maybe some of you have wondered, who did Seth or Cain marry? Why did Abraham marry his half-sister? It's clear that we wouldn't allow that today. This is another example of a biblical principle of marriage, one man and one woman, but God changing the circumstances of that biblical principle to say this is the appropriate level of relationship for people to marry. So now we don't have brothers and sisters marrying anymore, do we? I don't expect any of our young men expect to marry their sisters. And if they did, they would probably think it was the worst punishment possible. But what we do know is that God's law, along with the laws of our nation, allow marriage within certain levels of cousins. So we're not forbidden completely. This is a change in the particular, but the continuity of the substance stays the same. And that's what's happening here as the Christians worship. We didn't just decide on a whim to worship Sunday mornings here at Christ Church. We didn't just decide on a whim to have Sunday evening worship at Christ Church. We do that as a way of bookending the day, to help you to sanctify the day, to have the Lord Jesus Christ in your thoughts. Not so that you might fulfill a duty, but so that you might put off all of the things that drive you crazy Monday through Saturday. Work, laundry, meetings, conference calls, homework, tests. You don't have to worry about them. This is a slice of heaven. Well, they gather together here in the evening, and this does provide us a pattern for our evening worship, but there is also something that is, I think, very common sense oriented about an evening worship here. You're talking about many people who are slaves or servants. They don't have Sunday morning off. The only time they can be freed from their duties is Sunday evening. And so they gather together with great relish after a long day at work. And they come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to hear from God's Word. And as we're going to see here, to hear from God's Word 
for a long period of time. Now, again, put that in perspective for us. The challenge we have from the blessings that God gives to us is that we sit here on a Sunday when nearly all of us are off from work. And we drive in comfortable cars and minivans and come into an air-conditioned, although sometimes squeaky, building. And we worship the Lord. And that's difficult for us. You need to know that at times it's difficult for your pastor to get up on Sunday morning and come to worship. But it helps if we think about these early Christians who worked hard, who were stolen from, who were persecuted, who were abused, and all they could think about was coming together once a week. They were coming together to see each other, but primarily to hear the Word of the Lord. They're listening to Paul preach. Now, by my records here, Paul goes a good four hours in his sermon proper. There's some commentary later we'll look at. Four hours he preaches. Now, this tells us something. And it's not just that you ought to listen as long as I ought to talk. What it tells us is there is so much to say about the gospel that you can do this. And you see, oftentimes people look at this passage and they only think about the preacher. But I want you to think about this for yourself. Teachers in VBS, how many times did you tell Barbara Brister last year you needed more time to cover the material? I know many of you did an awful lot. Sunday school teachers, how often do you not cover everything you even think you should cover, let alone want to cover in Sunday school? There's so much more, isn't there? Bible study teachers, Bible study participants, do you study the Word of God? And when you do, look and say, wow, did the time fly. You see, the Word of God is so rich and the Gospel is so full that there is so much to say. I have quipped with some of you, but it is true. The hardest thing for a preacher to do is to decide what to leave on the desk. Not because the preacher is brilliant, but because there's so much that can be said from the Word of God. And they are there to hear this and to take this in, in very much the same position that you all are in this morning. Now, we're not going to go for four hours, but do you think about it? Do you take notes? Do you talk with your children or each other over the lunch table? When we come back Sunday evening, do you have questions about the text or what we've done? Do you encourage one another in your study? Is your life formed around the Word of God? You see, that's the importance of preaching and teaching. Bringing the Word of God to our lives. It also reminds us that the real power that we have in the church of Jesus Christ is in God's Word. That's why it is critically important that we never give up the battle for the Bible. Ever. I just engaged in some of this This weekend, as I was on my phone between baseball innings, one of my in-laws had had posted something about an odd question in the Bible, and some of the people who were making comments on there were saying things like, well, you know, the Bible really is a book of stories. We need to understand the genre of the Bible. It's not really meant as history. God doesn't mean us to take these things literally. You know, the words of Jesus aren't literal. They're just paraphrases. 
And I felt myself compelled as I'm wiping sweat off my brow and making sure that Van is keeping the kids in line on the field to say, no, if you say this about Adam, then Romans 5 is wrong and then Jesus is a liar. No, the Bible is historically true and if it isn't, then you make Jesus a liar. No, the Bible is not just a a bunch of stories. It has stories in it, but it is true. Every single word of the Bible is true. Don't ever take that for granted. That's easy to say sitting here amongst the true believers, right? We're used to saying this in our families and in our church. But this is a battle that we must take out into the broader church and into society because it is an intellectual battle. Christians who believe the Bible is true are not unthinking. They are thinking. They understand there are logical consequences to ideas. We must never give up the battle for the Bible. This is something that the church here at Troas must have just loved. I can almost imagine in my mind's eye, in years to come, they would say, do you remember the time when Paul preached that four-hour sermon? Oh, wow. Do I remember? Let me tell you one of his illustrations. That was great. They were hung upon the Word of God. But they also gathered together in the Lord's Supper. That's what's meant here in verse 7 by they were gathered together to break bread. And then in verse 11, when Paul had gone up, they had broken bread. Part of the purpose of gathering is not just to hear the Word, but to be affected by the Word and to participate in the sacraments. There is a reason God gave us Word and sacrament. Because He knows we're not just mind people. We're also touch people, taste people, smell people. We like things tangible to remind us of the truth of God's Word. And so they were gathered together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, I want you to notice something, though. The Supper comes after Paul's sermon. There's a reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper after the Word is preached. There's a reason, and the reason is that the Word of God is primary. And the sacrament depends upon the Word of God for all of its power. Because the sacrament is really just the Word of God in picture form. So they gather together to worship. They gather together to hear God's Word. They gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper. And then they do something else. After they had broken bread and eaten... Paul conversed with them a long while, until daybreak. Now, we have gathered together here, and we have heard the word preached. And on the last Sunday of the month, we gather together and we hear and partake of the Lord's Supper. And we do this, too. This happens all the time on Sunday night. You know, it's when the deacon of the month says, Folks, I do need to get home sometime this evening. Could we please, as a half an hour, or 45 minutes, or an hour goes by as people sit and converse, that is what is meant by true fellowship. It's being around one another and encouraging one another. It's what we do between services. This kind of conversing that Paul is doing is not the same kind of authoritative preaching and teaching he did earlier. It's a different word. It's an unusual word. Paul is standing around the pews 
explaining the Scriptures and taking questions and listening to prayer requests and listening to people's lives. This is what the church is all about. A focus upon the Word, a participation in the sacraments, and a participation in each other's lives, in fellowship. All of these elements are important. That's why we do these things here at Christ Church. Because this is what it means to be a biblical church. It's the pattern that started in Acts 2. As they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship. This is what it means to worship the Lord and to be blessed by it. Well, Paul has learned from God's providence. And the people of Troas and Paul are encouraged and blessed by this time of worship. But really, what bookends this entire passage, what brings meaning to all that is going on here, is the comfort that God is giving to His people. They are receiving God's comfort. It's just a tiny bit hidden for some of you that don't know biblical synonyms. If we look here in verse 1, do you see that Paul sent for the disciples and after that he did what? He encouraged them. Right? And then he went through Macedonia and had given them much encouragement. And then he came to Greece. And now look here at the end at verse 12. As they took the youth away, they were not a little comforted. All of these words are the same word. It's the word that we use when we describe the Holy Spirit by His title of the Comforter. You see, in this whole passage, I think Luke wants us to see the comfort that comes to the church through the ministry of the church and the power of God. The first and most obvious way to see this is in the kingdom power that we see in the incident with our good friend Eutychus. Now, imagine what's going on here. It's a late night service. A long day at work. No air conditioning. And Luke gives us the details. There are a great many lamps burning. Now, have any of you ever been in a room where there were a great many candles? Or where there were um, perhaps larger torches? Do you know what fire does to air? Sucks all the oxygen out of the air, doesn't it? Now imagine that you're in a space, in a room, in a place where there's all kinds of torches. And it's late. And it's dark. And the light is flickering. And the oxygen is all got out of the air. And so what you do is your eyes start to close. And you've done this perhaps. I know I have. It's the head bob. Okay, all right, I can't fall asleep. All right, what am I going to do? Okay, all right. Um, pay attention. Okay, wait, just shut my eyes for a minute. Just for a minute. Oh, no, okay. All right, as a last resort, I will take notes. Okay, that will keep me awake. Now, again, this is real. You see, when that happens to you, Satan wants you to miss anything that you have gotten out of the Word. He wants you to feel bad about yourself, beat yourself up. But it happens. It's real. We push on and we move on. And you see, this happens here to 
Eutychus. There's a sudden interruption. You can imagine Paul is preaching. And all of a sudden, you hear... And everyone looks, what is going on? And I want you to imagine the reality of this. His mother screaming. Talk about breaking up a worship service. Because young men, Eutychus is probably between the ages of 8 and 14. He falls asleep, falls down three stories, and hits the ground. And the text tells us that he's dead. Now, some look at this and say that Paul says, oh, no, no, he's okay, he's fine. He just brushed himself off. Like any of you have seen somebody fall three stories and be fine. I, on the other hand, I'm going to go with Dr. Luke. Luke is the only doctor here, and Luke says he's dead. That also goes along with common sense. But Paul comes up. Now, why is it important that he's dead? It's because Paul knows he's got a screaming, hysterical mother. A father is pacing, doesn't know what to do. His friends are frantic. There's crying, there's wailing. And Paul says, no, no, no. And he takes him up in his arms and he says, no, he's fine. Look. And at least I get an image in my mind of another prophet of God who, with another dead child, comforted another mother by taking up that child in his arms and saying, no, the breath is still in him. This is like the ministry of Elijah and Elisha all over again. It is the power of the kingdom of God. And that power is used in a very specific way. It is not used to rule nations. It is not used to pass laws. It is not used to be glamorous. It is not used to raise money. It is, be, it is used to comfort God's people. That is the power of God. Touching lives, comforting people. It shouldn't surprise us here. Because this whole section is about comfort. Paul has gone around comforting in his ministry in verses 1 and verse 2. Paul knew this kind of comfort himself. You remember I said he wrote this second letter to the Corinthians about this time. And when Titus had come to him, he wrote this, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting and without fighting within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us in the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for Me, so that I rejoiced still the more. This is the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. It is to comfort the afflicted. It is to encourage the downcast. We take comfort because we know that God is in control in His providence. We take comfort because we are blessed by the worship that God has given to us. And we take comfort because this is the ministry that Jesus Christ has committed to us. Are you ready to see that comfort in your life? Are you ready to share that comfort with others? That is the calling of the Christian. Let's pray.